Wonderful. Thank you very, very much, Alan, for leading uh, for us. Thank you, Tim, for keeping us right uh, with the tech and the sound this morning. And again, a very warm welcome to you all. And a welcome to the beginning of our new series for the year as we come to the book of 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles with you, it'd be great to have that open. Um, and the, uh, and the, the slides will come up behind me as we, go, as we go through it together. This letter will be our companion as we go through this term together. And we'll be looking at it between us as a church family all across the board on Sundays, um, as it's preached in our small groups uh, when we meet together during the week. And the new youth group will also be going through 1 Peter as well for the first half of this term. Incidentally, it's really, really great to see Anna, uh, Ian and Liana here as well. It's really, really good to see you both. It's uh, all is forgiven. Please come back. <laughs> it's, great, it's great to have you. It's really, really good to see you. And Maya, who none of us recognize because she's now enormous. But it's, uh, it's really great to have you both here with us uh, this morning. I do hope that as we look at this book together across all those different settings that as a consequence, we really get to enjoy and imbibe it as a church family together. Not least because I think 1 Peter speaks to everything that we will be facing this term as we head out of restrictions and begin to enter the world uh, again in many respects as we aim to build a church that will stand the test of time in the real world. And that is very much, in a nutshell, what Peter, 1 Peter is all about, being a Christian in the real world. And that is very much the question we shall be asking, if you like, over the course of the whole series. What in the world is a Christian? And how does a Christian live in it? Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, in any case, there is always a sense of slight bewilderment as I come into a new term, especially after the summer, you're a bit foggy. It sort of takes you a long time to get your brain into gear. And, and, and that new term sort of sense of bewilderment is even more keen when, and there are a number of you who are in this position, especially with our kids as well, who are here this, this morning, where that new term involves a big change, such as starting a new job. I've spoken to some of you about that. Starting a new school. Some of our kids have done this week. Starting a new term at university, for example. Some of you watching online, that will have been the case. And in your bewilderment of getting the hang of somewhere new, it's very easy to be taken in by what's going on around you in your desperation to conform. Um, in my first term at university, on my first day, um, I went to my pigeonhole and I found a letter, along with all the other first years, um, on student union headed notepaper asking us all to turn up to one of the main halls for, for a mandatory seminar, but for a free welcome lunch alongside it. And to access this lunch, you had to bring something with you that was branded with uh, Cardiff University Crest. And so all of us sort of scattered back to our rooms. We tried to find something that had Cardiff University on it. And we all sort of marched down excitedly to the hall uh, to, to, to get our lunch. And we, we all walked in only to find that it was a hoax. There was nothing there waiting for us except an empty hall with a number of older students with their cameras who worked at the student newspaper taking pictures of us, which were then going to be uploaded in the next day's paper. And apparently there was a bet with the third years as to how many people they could get into the hall um, um, under, the, under sort of a, a hoax, and it was all very, very embarrassing. Someone made a lot of money, and uh, all because of our gullibility. Because of our desperation, to conform. The next day's paper was full of pictures of gormless first years, sort of hunting for, for, for lunch, holding these Cardiff, uh, Cardiff University hoodies in front of them. It was very, very embarrassing. And you can kind of understand why you'd fall for it. When you're new, for all of us, you just want to turn up and conform and fit in. You want to follow the crowd. You want to sort of do what everyone else is doing. You don't want to stand out. And that desire to conform is heavily deep-wired in all of us. It's because of that, that desire to fit in and not be different, that Peter feels he needs to write a letter. And he needs to write a letter to a group of Christians 
who were up against the world and who were faced with the deep temptation to conform and to fit in, specifically in the context in the area of, of, of where they are in, in Asia Minor. That, that's now modern-day Turkey. That's where all these places that Charlie read uh, um, are, are situated. And these Christians are tempted to conform to the rest of the world because, as we will see over the coming weeks and months, these Christians were suffering greatly for being Christian. And it was really, really hard. Now, there's no evidence in 1 Peter that these Christians dispersed all over this enormous area of modern-day Turkey that they're actively being persecuted sort of by, by flame or by sword. That kind of persecution is going to come to them in the timeline of the early church. In a few years of this letter being written, the, 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 the Roman emperors are going, to, are going to decimate the early church. At least they're going to try to, and it's brutal. But that's not happening yet. What's going on here in 1 Peter was, was subtle but, but deeply persistent social ostracism and, and alienation and uh, bullying, if you like, and verbal abuse. People looking down at them, criticising them, discriminating them in, in minor ways, re- removing them from jobs, maybe, or subjecting them to public slander. Those are the words, and we'll see them all the way through over the next few weeks that you see. You are subjected to public slander. You're under trials of various kinds in, in the normal real world. It's just it's just plainly very difficult and all because they were Christians and that's really hard because we like to fit in we don't want to be on the wrong side of culture we want to be a part of the crowd it just feels so much safer that way and it seems that some of these in 1 Peter are even beginning to give up on the Christian faith altogether and we know that because of what Peter says right at the end of the letter. For, 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 for there, Peter gives us the reason for why he is writing this letter to this group of people. We find that reason in chapter 5, verse 12. Um, turn it up if you have it in front of you. This is, this is important. This is our tagline for the series. Peter says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. In other words, what I have explained to you in the whole of this letter, scattered Christians, the content of which we will mine together over the course of this term at Redeemer, is true, says Peter. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great Christian message, is true. And this message, this this gospel, is not only true, but it also speaks to the amazing grace, the the undeserved grace, the, the unmerited love that God has showered upon us. It might be hard to believe in this world, that that is true. It might be hard for, as you suffer so much, to to think that that might be true, but it is true. This is the true grace of God, so, continues Peter, stand firm in it. Don't buckle, don't conform, don't flee. Stand firm, scattered church, in God's incredible grace. And as soon as we see that and understand the reason for this letter, so suddenly this letter becomes very, very relevant for all of us. Because this challenge of being different or standing out and needing to be encouraged to stand firm, well, it is a massive issue for all kinds of people. I reckon there are three types of people listening to this sermon this morning, maybe even represented in this room this morning. Maybe you're in the first group and you're not a Christian. And maybe you're here or you're watching online because uh, someone's brought you, your friends or your family, or you're genuinely intrigued as to what I might say. And I would gather that there may be all kinds of reasons as to why you're not a Christian. 
Perhaps you've got big questions about the Christian faith that you feel haven't been answered, such as science and faith, or, or the arrogance of Christianity, or the reliability of the Bible. How do you know what is true? Can there be absolute truth? Well, if that is you, I ask you to, to stick around this term. Over the course of this term, on some Sundays, we'll be asking those questions. We'll be having separate Sundays where those questions are posed, and you can ask me questions from the floor. That's, that's going to be what we're, we're starting to do this term as we get back on site. But the long and the short of it is, I wonder if for many of you, the reason that you've not become a Christian is because you just don't want to be different. You recognize the cost that there will be if you do become a Christian, and it's really hard to be different. Now, the others here who, who may call yourselves Christians, or, or you're really, really close to thinking about seriously becoming a Christian, but you know you've sort of not nailed your colors too publicly to the mast yet. You're not committed to the Lord Jesus, you're sort of hanging back. And it's almost certainly because you don't want to be different. And for the rest of us, even if we're proclaiming Christ, trying to serve Christ, well, we often do it very weakly. And we all admit that we are deeply compromised, we compromise in the way that we think, the way that we live, all because in reality so often we desire to conform, we want to fit into the world around us. We don't want to be different because sometimes it's just too hard. Well, Peter writes this letter to those who are tempted to compromise or give up on the Christian faith or never get going in the first place, and he says, keep going. Keep searching, I implore you. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. As we introduce this series this morning, as we spend time in just the first two verses today before we launch properly into it next week, this is what I want to say front and centre as your minister, as we embark on what for us is, uh, uh, as a new young church, is going to be a very new and different term, thanks in part to the pandemic. A term of us walking, sort of blinking into the sunlight of the real world again, if you like, as we sort of come out of lockdown as we begin to fill our time with work and family and friendships and colleagues and neighbours, as we sort of brush up against the world again, as we, as we should be doing but, but haven't been doing over the past 18 months, as we begin to feel the discomfort of doing that, as we begin to feel the sting from the world, the reminder of how difficult it is, as, as we feel that we're being discriminated against with the views that we might hold as Christians, from the subtle persecution that we might face at work or at school or at uni for being Christians. The, the, the one thing I think we need to hear this term more than anything else, front and centre, is what Peter wants his readers to hear in exactly the same situation that we're in. The gospel of the grace of God, that it is true, and that we are to stand firm in it. The gospel that you received from me, the apostles, and from Jesus Christ himself, this is not just anything, says Peter, as we'll see over the course of these weeks. This is the true grace of God that will find you, that will hold you, that will see you and deliver you to everlasting life, to this imperishable inheritance. Don't flee from it. Don't buckle, Redeemer, as suffering and anxiety and persecution and difficulty come your way. Don't conform to the world. Don't bend to its will in order to make life easier for you. Stand firm. Resolutely in the deep, immovable grace of God. And that's where Peter starts 
as he begins his letter, he starts with the origins of the basic gospel and the manner by which it is given. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, simply the first two verses, as Peter introduces himself straight away as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means he's been especially and specifically chosen by the Lord Jesus to be his representative and to speak with his authority. And then he goes into who he's writing to. But if you notice, he sort of expands his description of his readers. He could have just said, to those Christians in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. But he doesn't just say that, he says so much more. And right at the beginning, the, the expansion of this little greeting speaks into the situation that these Christians find themselves in as they fear slander and, and discrimination in the world, as they worry about de- being different, and as they are reminded to stand firm in God's grace. And there are just three big truths that I want to look at this morning as we introduce this letter to us that will shape the book going forward, that we'll return to time and time again. Three truths that that Peter introduces here in these two verses, three truths that concern this issue of feeling different and strange in the world. The first truth, the the truth that underpins the entire book, the point that will be driving all the way through, is that Christians should expect to always be different. That's the first thing we read, isn't it? That these Christians are exiles. That is, they are strangers in the world. Homeless, if you like. Wherever they are, that is not where they're meant to be. That's the way Peter speaks to them, those who are elect exiles in the world. Literally exiles of the dispersion, with a capital D, the the diaspora he's talking about here. Um, The word diaspora means the, 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 the scattering, as you know, of an ethnic group of people all over the world from their homeland usually due to some tragedy, quite often war. And as we look on the the scenes of Afghanistan this week, the the rest of the world is getting ready for the great Afghan diaspora as uh, um, Afghans flee the Taliban and they, they sort of head to the EU, the UK and the US. They are refugees who will be homeless, some of them stateless. And this, as Peter, is what you Christians are like as you find yourself scattered all over these regional hubs in Turkey, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, etc. You are exiles. The word uh, diaspora itself, I don't know if you know this, it actually comes from the Old Testament word, which specifically describes the scattering of the Jews back in in the Old Testament after the pagan nation Babylon came in and ransacked Israel and carried the Jews uh, back off um, um, and held them as subjugation of slaves under them in Babylon. All of Israel was in exile. The people of that nation were called the exiles. We call that period of biblical history the exilic period. And we're hopefully going to be looking at the book of Daniel in the new year where we're going to see that period played out in front of us over the course of that history. Well, Peter uses this exact phrase here to conjure up that very time period. You Christians in Asia Minor, scattered all over that that massive part of the world, you are exiles, you're homeless like the people of God were. Scattered in a place that you do not call your own. And the designation exile is a refrain that comes over and over again all the way through this letter. Chapter 1, verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, Peter says. Chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And then right at the end, chapter 5, verse 13, which is a really intriguing reference, Peter writes this. He says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. 
He describes this woman, we don't know who she is, as someone who is in Babylon. Most likely, Peter is writing about Rome. That's what he's talking about. Babylon doesn't exist at the time of writing. Peter's in Rome. That's where he's writing this letter. And Rome, sort of the capital of the known world at the time, was the antithesis of what God's people stood for. Rome worshipped Caesar, pagan gods, the Christians worshipped the one true God. So Rome is seen as a type of Babylon. Indeed, only a few years later after this letter is written, as I said, Rome is going to unleash a cruel, bitter and murderous persecution over this church, just like Babylon did to God's people in the Old Testament. In other words, Peter uses that designation deliberately to connect the minds of his readers, now minds today, with this period of history of God's people. In other words, what are God's people? God's people are an exilic people. That is what they are. That is what you are. A scattered people. That is what they are in the world. You Christians, says Peter, as God's people, therefore, you are an exilic scattered people. As you are literally scattered around the world, so that is spiritually exactly what it is you're like. Strangers under the boot of Babylon, but belonging to God. Uh, quite a number of you here at Redeemer are from overseas. And you perhaps will understand more readily the situation that Peter is speaking into than maybe those of us who are native to the UK, of what it means to really feel like the Christian that Peter is explaining here, as a foreigner in a strange place. And let's be really honest with ourselves, Britain is a strange place. Um, an American friend of mine once asked me why it was that no one in Britain just introduced themselves to strangers by their name. Straight up, and I asked him what he meant. And he said, well, I always go up to people I've never seen before and say, hi, I'm Taylor, who are you? Hand thrust out, ready to shake. And people look at me as if they want to die. And I said, well, yes, Taylor, because that's mortifying. You never do that. You see, I explained in Britain, unless you're introduced, you must never chat to someone you don't know. And if you absolutely have to, you must never ask them their name or give them your name. And if you absolutely do need to know that, then you need to wait awkwardly until the end of the conversation when you're just about to turn away and some of you have the guts to go, oh, sorry, what was your name again? I didn't catch it. And that's, the, that's sort of the course of a normal conversation in Britain. And Taylor said, but that's ridiculous. And I said, I know, but it's British. And it's what you need to do. The British are ridiculous. And you can either conform, Taylor, and join in the awkwardness of trying to guess someone's name like a normal British person, or you can be strange and ask for it yourself and feel very odd. It's purely up to you, my friend. And as amusing as that example might be, wherever you are somewhere new, those of you from overseas, you will know that you sort of have to make decisions all the time. Do, do I conform to this, or is this something I'm just not getting myself into? And all of those decisions will rank from the not-so-important to the incredibly difficult. Will I fit in at this point, or will I choose to remain different? That speaks to the disconnect of where you are. You're in Britain, but you're Argentinian, and the two clash. Or you're from South Africa, and the, the two clash. Or you're Singaporean, and, and the two clash. It all clashes. You're not really at home. Well, says Peter, that is the experience of all Christians, wherever you are in the world. All believers, you are strangers and exiles in the world. You don't really belong. You're like God's chosen ones, Israel, who were taken to a horrible place, Babylon, many thousands of miles away, surrounded by a mighty, massive nation that followed other gods and idols and practices, feeling hopelessly different, lost, alone, scattered, strange and small. 
And to some degree, those Jews had to fit in. They had to learn the language, eat the food. But in other ways, they had to fight to conform. Don't drop your standards, says God in the Old Testament. Don't follow the gods and religious practices of the nations around you. Remain faithful to the Lord, to Yahweh, the one true God. And that's going to really sting. And so it is for us this morning as Christians, as a church family here in Edinburgh, even for those of us who are born here. To some degree, we fit in with this world as Christians, as humans, but in many other ways, we really don't. For we are strangers in the world. We no longer take our standards from the world. Rather, we take them from the one true God. And that's going to hit everything. In family life, for example, we find we're different. All our friends have aspirations for their children. The one thing they desire for them is to achieve great success and financial security and position and status, to be brilliant at school academically, musically, in sport, whatever it is. And, and for those of us who are Christians, that's fine if our kids are naturally like that, but that is not our priority as parents. Number one, for those who follow the Lord Jesus, says the Bible, is that our kids will be raised in Christ and grow up as Christians. And sometimes those things will clash, and so an exilic decision needs to be made at that point. Do I send my kid on that luxurious holiday with the school and their mates, or do I send them to this SU camp where they will hear the gospel being preached every single day, cultivating Christian friendships? Or they're great at a particular sport, but the only day they can play is on a Sunday during church, and so an exilic decision needs to be made. Do I allow them to go to practice along with everyone else, or do I keep bringing them to church with me and the family, contrary to what every single parent will be doing, contrary to what my child will want me to be doing? Because I know they need to be hearing about the Lord Jesus, setting up a pattern for life and for their life as they listen to the word of God with the church family. Or our attitudes to possessions. For the world, this matters massively, especially in the communities and society that we all live in here in Collington, in Edinburgh, in the UK more generally. We, we live among some of the, 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 the richest people in the world. We are ourselves exceedingly wealthy. And to be the person, perhaps, who is, for example, not noted for having the house that someone would expect from a position or, or according to their job or status. I was chatting to one of you only this week about exceedingly wealthy people who live exceedingly frugal lives. Tim, it was with you, I think, and sort of people who then drive bog-standard cars, even though they're earning millions, um, making millions in one bonus, handing it back over to God's work, and then living in a two-up, two-down in a cul-de-sac. You really couldn't tell. An attitude which would be unimaginable to the world. These people are making exilic decisions every single day and standing out and feeling different because of it. Their colleagues thinking they're mad. Or indeed, maybe more pertinently for us, they're refusing to bow to culture on the hot social topics of our age, on matters of sex or sexuality and gender and identity, loving these people, these groups of people, until we bleed, but standing nonetheless on the truths and the ethics of the Bible holding the line for our kids when they are taught something radically different in school, even when it's deeply uncomfortable. Indeed, even when it gets dangerous. Standing firm in the grace and the good news that God has for humans and men and women and boys and girls. There are so many ways that we will just not, indeed where we should not fit in. Where we cannot conform, where we can't pretend to feel at home, where we will always be in exile. 
Time after time, the way we think, the way we behave, the way we act, interact, react, we will feel different. Taking standards not from the world around us, but from God himself. And right at the beginning of this book, Peter, right up front, reminds us that this is what we should expect. Christians are exiles in the world, and we should expect to be different. Don't be shocked, says Peter, when you feel different and it's hard. Because that is who you are. We'll read, later in this, we'll read later in this book, Peter using those very words. He says, don't be surprised, exiles, when you face fiery trials of every kind, as if something strange were happening to you. That's literally what Peter says. It's not strange. That's entirely normal because this isn't where you're meant to be. You're not home. You're strangers. Christians are exiles and strangers in the world, and you should expect to be different. Don't panic. Stand firm in the true grace of God. However, as much as that is true, the more surprising thing in all of this is, as Peter continues, it might be uncomfortable being different in the world, but as Christians, second point, you will want to be. Christians will want to be different. And that, says Peter, is because Christians know God as their loving Heavenly Father. The danger is, of course, if we just leave the sermon there, is that what I've said so far can give us the wrong impression of what Christianity is all about where it sort of comes across as being all about this moralistic life that Christians sort of have to grin and bear and brace, and the more you give away, the more holy you are, the more frugal you are, the closer to God you are. We've got to keep fighting, and we bleed, and woe is us, and we're on a crusade for the kingdom. It's all horribly depressing and masochistic and miserable. A bit like Christianity is God telling me to do things, the things I don't want to do, but I have to do them. It's a total bore. And, and only the hearty and the self-composed and the worthy will actually want to do those things. Why on earth would we bother? And if that's our view of the Christian religion, well, that only ever leaves us with a sense of fear and a sense of guilt, doesn't it? I have a hell to spurn, and so that might force me to do some of the things that God wants me to do out of sheer fear, but then I feel guilty as I don't want to do them well and not with the right motives, and I'm just miserable. Honestly, there is so much guilt, and there is so much fear, and it's brutal. Why in the world would I bother? Well, that is a travesty of what the Christian message is, because wonderfully, the Christian message that Peter expounds in this letter does not begin with what I do for God. It begins with what God has done for us. This one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and his amazing grace, he wants us to know him as Father. You see, before the beginning of the world, we'll read, says Peter, this one God knew that we were going to turn away from him. And yet already, before he created anything, he had this loving plan to call the people back to himself. God the Father took the initiative, and here he sends the Son and the Spirit to bring that plan to fulfillment, through no less than the sprinkling of his own blood on a cruel wooden cross, as we'll see. And Peter reminds these Christians in exile, scattered all over this part of the world, and, and, and if we are Christians here today, he reminds us of exactly the same thing, that you are the beneficiaries of this eternal, amazing, loving, sacrificial plan of an eternal, holy creator God. You might be a despised minority in the world, as these Christians were, just feeling as if you don't quite belong, as these Christians did, and always feeling as if you're on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of the argument, holding the views that would make you a social pariah, but you are God's chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, as, people, as Peter will tell us. Pe people in the world who are God's 
own possession, just as Israel was called God's chosen people, his holy nation in the world. All those Jew and Gentile who belong to the Lord Jesus, who are chosen by God, beneficiaries of God's eternal plan. And that's what verse 2 is all about. You are elect exiles, that means you are chosen exiles. By what means, verse 2, by the foreknowledge of God the Father. You are chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father. Those are quite powerful and deliberate words, aren't they? Chosen and foreknowledge. Doesn't simply mean that God just merely knew in advance those who would turn to him. We might better say that it means to be foreloved. God has sent his love on after us, but before the creation of the world, before we even began to take a step in his direction, he foreloved us. There's many questions that may pop up in our minds when we hear these words. The age-old debates about predestination, election, salvation come to mind. I don't want to brush those aside, and helpfully, if you want to chat to me about them, I'll willingly chat to you after the service. But I think what's helpful for now is to say what it doesn't mean as we read these passages The foreknowledge of God doesn't mean rank fatalism. The Bible is very clear that our decisions are very important and they really matter. We're not just pre-programmed by God as robots. It's not fatalism, nor is it any cause for despair amongst any of us, or even those who aren't Christians who are watching today, who think, well, I'm not sure I've been foreloved. I'll never be sure, so therefore I don't have any hope. Not in the slightest. This is a very real offer to everyone. God says all the way through the Bible, come, please come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Knock, and the door shall be opened to you. Seek me, and you will find me. Ask, and I will give it to you. Choose me, we read in the Gospels, above all other choices. Hear and listen and respond to my words, says Jesus. Put them into practice. There's a genuine invitation for us all and for us all to act with reason. What this is, this incredible truth of being elect and foreknown and foreloved, is a deep, glorious encouragement to believers. God is saying you have been called to belong to God. He allows you to call him Father for nothing that you have done. It's all thanks to him. This is the true grace of God. Total unmerited favour given to you, flagrant and abating love sent after you when you weren't even born, when you weren't even aware of his presence. And he calls you and wins you such that you are given the right to call him father. And that is awesome. Perhaps we're thinking to ourselves, at least we should be, how can it be then that I'm fit for the presence of God enough to call him father and for me to be his son or daughter? In my state in the way that I often do feel very much at home with the world, not at all like an exile as I ought. A bit like when great Aunt Marjorie comes and visits and your mum used to say, you need to clean yourself up in preparation for her coming. You you look filthy, you need to change, you need to sort yourself out. She's going to go spare if she sees you like this. As if we need to sort of spruce ourselves up in preparation to meet with God. How are we meant to do that with God if we can't do that with Aunt Marjorie? So we looked at last week, Psalm 24, we're not fit for his presence. We can't climb the hill, ascend the hill of the Lord. We can't be associated with him. And it gets even worse when we realize that the problem we have is, is deep within. A really deep problem. I don't just have to change my clothes, I need to change my heart. 
Jesus was talking with the Pharisees one day, and the Pharisees weren't happy with his disciples not following the strict laws of the Sabbath. And Jesus says, well, that doesn't make someone unclean. Nor does doing external things make them clean. The, the problem is deep within, from within, out of men's hearts comes thought, sexual immorality, evil deeds. The problem is the heart, says Jesus, and we need deep heart cleansing. And that is what God makes possible, says Peter. As God sends the Son at the end of verse 2 to do what? To sprinkle with his blood. That's the cross. I deserve the penalty of separation from God forever. Banishment from his presence. I'm so dirty. Deep within, I deserve to die. But God sends his Son, Jesus Christ, to die on his cross for me, to sprinkle me by his shed blood. In my place, he took the punishment I deserved so I can be completely forgiven, my sin washed away. I don't know what sins might be on your conscience. But when I think about the things I've done and said and thought of in my life, even over the past few weeks, those certain things that sort of keep coming back to you and keep you up at night, the skins that make my skin crawl and literally wince, that's when I need to remember that Jesus died for those sins. And because of the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ sprinkled, because of the sins he forgives for those who come to him in repentance and faith, I can truly call God Father. Where does the Spirit come in? Well, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Notice that becomes before the work of the Son. That's how it's experienced by us. The Father has a plan. He sent his Son, Jesus, to die for us. How can I understand what he did? How can I get to believe that? How do I hear about that kind of news? Well, that's the work of the Spirit to connect me to this incredible reality, to reveal it to my broken, filthy heart, to transform me, to, to make me born again, to, to connect me with Jesus Christ and in my understanding of who he is and who I am under him. The Father sends a spirit who turns my filthy heart towards Jesus. There is no greater spiritual gift or miracle in the earth than what the spirit does to people's hearts every day as he raises them from death to eternal life in connection with Jesus. So, Redeemer, have we understood this? These may be simple, basic gospel truths, but have we really understood them? Do we believe them? Not just in our heads, but in our hearts. Because if we do, it will become the case increasingly for us that we will, in fact, want to be exiles. We'll want to be different. Because deep down, you really want to be. At times, it will be unassailably difficult. There'll be times you want to buckle, give way, compromise. There'll be areas in your life which never seems to be brought into line with that exilic living, no matter how hard you try. But deep down, you want to be different because you are being bowled over by the amazing truth that this Jesus loved you enough to die on a cross for you and that God knows the best for you. And you want to give your life to be worshipping him and serving him in the world. And it all begins with what God has done for us. This is the grace of God. Stand firm in it and have your heart orientated towards embracing and longing for the exilic life under Jesus. Christians should expect to be different because of who we are, chosen as God's people in the earth. But Christians, if we've understood this amazing gospel, will want to be different. But finally and very quickly, Christians must also decide every day to be different. 
Christianity is all about what God has done for us, but then comes our response to what he has done for us, which, as we will see woven through this letter, is a life lived in every single area of our lives in obedience and faith to him. Verse 2, God chose us to belong to him for obedience to Christ and sprinkling by his blood. That's what we're for. We've been called for a purpose as elect exiles, as Christians. We're not just saved and then zapped up to heaven. We're put to life, to a wonderful life, to a full life, to an abundant life, a transformed life, to trust in Jesus and to obey him. Naturally, we're all worshippers of something. We all worship something or some, someone. There's always something that determines our life or demands our attention to little details and decisions of our lives. And it's either Jesus Christ or it is something else. And if it's something else, it will eventually destroy our lives and it will drag us down. That's what we're going to read. It'll never satisfy. Only Jesus. He's the one to obey. It might be in areas of success. There are plenty of people driven by success. If I can only achieve those exam results, we might say to ourselves, or that one job position or that promotion, just the next grade, I will be satisfied. And that's what drives them. And the result is that they're nearly always incredibly anxious people. Their whole life is dependent on achieving the next step. And when they fail, they panic. And when they get there, they panic because there's another step still to go. Those grades, those jobs, their hopes and dreams, even if they got them all, they will never satisfy. Maybe it's pleasure. Get all the experiences, all the sensual manifestations of the world experienced and reveled in. Byron, who was a notorious hedonist, he wrote the following. He said, I drank early, I drank deeply, I drank drafts that every man has drunk, and then I died of thirst because there was nothing left to drink. None of those pleasures he pursued with such passion ever satisfied him. Or what of relationships, if that's what drives us? Investing everything into human relationships and friendships, we will be bound to be insecure. The anxiety, the emotional dependency undermines our ability to have what we most long for, to keep and enjoy and form close relationships. Only by knowing God through Jesus Christ is there true security, we will read. He's the one who calls us to obey him. And in his service is perfect freedom, true security. He loves us enough to die for us, so he will never let us go. This isn't a trite friendship. He died for you. And with that comes lasting satisfaction. This is the relationship for which we were made. Our deepest longings are met in him. He, he gives us in this book at the end of verse 2, grace and peace in abundance. That's where Peter finishes. Grace, that undeserved love he pours out over us, and peace, that's the contentment and satisfaction that he pours out into our lives. In trusting the Father and obeying the Father, waking up and deciding to follow Jesus, living the life of faith, who am I trusting in? Chapter 4, verse 19 says this, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator while choosing to do good. So what in the world is a Christian? What is a Christian in the real world? What should we expect to feel and be like as we embark on this new term as a church family of God's people in the earth? Well, a Christian is an exile. We are strangers in the world, different. A people who in our difference will attract flack and suffering and discomfort. And we should expect to be like that every single day. 
But will we be Christians, a church family, an exilic community, who embrace this life and desire it daily as we see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as a beautiful, life-affirming thing that, by the power of the Spirit, allows us to call God Father despite our sin and gives us access to an imperishable eternity with him, our real home? Will we be Christians who long for this life every day? And will we be Christians, therefore, a church family, an exilic community, that ultimately decide to be different every day, to follow Jesus, to suffer for Jesus, to obey Jesus every day, to live the life of faith after Jesus every day, for holding the line in the world every day and making Jesus known in the earth every day. For what is written in these pages is the true saving grace of a good Father God. Let us then stand firm in it. Let me pray for us as we close. Father God, thank you and praise you so very much for your goodness to us in the gospel this morning. Thank you for these words of your servant Peter. Thank you for um, the situation that he writes into that helps us as we find ourselves, along with every single other Christian on the planet over the course of the ages since Christ, that we are people who are exiles in the world, separated in the world, um, allowed to be in the world to, to make a real difference in it for Jesus, but separated to the Heavenly Father God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, I'd really, really pray that you help us as a church this year, help us through all the myriad of difficult things that we are going to face and that we are going to meet, not, not least with each other. We'll see in 1 Peter how it is that we sort things out with each other as we go through um, the, 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 this term and as we go through this year. Father God, please help us. Help us to stand firm in the grace of God. Help us not to buckle. Help us not to give way. Help us not to attempt to make life easier for ourselves, but to hold the line of faith, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to obey him every day, choosing the exilic life as we wait and long for eternal life with him and that imperishable inheritance that will be ours in the Lord Jesus. We pray all these things with great thanksgiving in your mighty name. Amen.